We don't really have a cold open for this one, huh? No Pokemon. Someone be funny. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I feel all business today. We have a Christmas party, and I feel all business. I do, too. (laughs) It's because I don't have an ugly sweater. That's why. Welcome to Talking Underwater. One water, one podcast. I'm Bob Crossan, Senior Managing Editor for Water and Waste Digest. I'm Lauren Del Cello, Managing Editor of Water Quality Products. And I'm Katie Johns, Managing Editor of Stormwater Solutions. So this month we have something that's a little bit different for you. We are doing a State of the Industry episode. We're going to be featuring interviews from not just one, but six industry leaders reflecting on the state of the industry from perspective segments of the water industry, including the wastewater sector, residential, commercial drinking water treatment sector, and stormwater and erosion control sectors as well. The interviews are followed by discussion from each of us, and we'll be sure to identify who's speaking throughout all of these because there's going to be a lot of voices. So we're going to try and make this as easy as we can. But to start off, we wanted to start with Paul Turgeon. He has led several water treatment companies in his career and has served on the board of directors for a new water technologies, BWA water additives, US water and MFG chemical among others. So Paul talked to me a little bit for my state of the industry survey about the interest of um, like private sector people in the water industry and why that's becoming valuable and what some of those industry drivers are. There's some interesting stats, different articles that I've kept my eye on over the last year. Um, So there's references such as countries uh, representing a quarter of the world's population are facing increasingly urgent uh, water risk and the prospect of running out of water. Um, Just pulling out a few quotes from different articles. um, there's some uh, worry around climate change. I know there's debates around, you know, um, global warming and climate change. But what we do see, and yeah, you could, and we know it's real data points, is that we're seeing more severe weather um, and periods of drought and then extreme rainfall, and that's stressing the water assets um, in that. Um, it seems that the weather patterns are just different than classically what we've dealt with. So where there could or would have been, the right amount of water in the right place at the right time. Oftentimes now there's a, there's an issue, so that's leading to some public angst and anxiety. Yeah, so obviously we all recognize that, especially from the stormwater perspective with Katie. She's rec- seeing tons of like, I mean, just extreme weather in general is becoming a bigger factor in in the market and whatnot. Yeah, and this year for 2019, there was an unprecedented amount of rain, which in turn led to a ton of flooding issues, and then in turn more flood control projects. Um, but so yeah, severe weather was was a big big impact this year for stormwater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but so Paul also talked a little bit about why private investment is um, interested in the water industry, specifically about like what it means to an investor to bring money into a company and what that means for their future as well. Well, water has been um, uh, a segment of investor interest for quite some time now. Um, uh, but it's, it, it, you know, with, with general recognition of those macro trends and drivers, and the fact that you know will it will lead to investment and activity um, that you know could be a good area to invest within. I think that's that's you know helping um, to uh, you know um, give some good tailwinds 
um, for investors in terms of seeing it as an area where there'll be need for investment for a long period of time and that the needs are complex and so there's room for innovation and, and new intellectual property and uh, you know it's not going to change in in our lifetime really um, so from an investor's view um, it feels like an area that you know they could invest capital to help the world and help come up with you know solutions to these problems and they'll be very valuable yeah, so the, I think the critical thing that I took away from that when I talked to him is that this private investment results in new IP and new innovations and things that they can then own and take take ownership of, and that's really valuable to someone who's just like dropping a bunch of money into a company, basically. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you see this a lot also in the sector that I focus on, the residential commercial water treatment sector, because as these new contaminants are continually emerging, technology is needing to evolve constantly and consistently to meet up with consumer demand and to meet up with changes in the marketplace. So I think we're going to see some really rapid investment in in the water industry in the next coming years across the board because of that. Yeah, and I think that we're already seeing a lot of it now. I mean, this year was filled with mergers and acquisitions in the municipal water space. Um, I mentioned that in my State of the Industry report that mm-hmm. like Chemco Systems acquired somebody, uh, Curita Water acquired U.S. Water, which had acquired Tonka Water the year before. Like The mergers and acquisitions element is becoming a bigger part of things too. So it's not just the private investment side. It's also merging brands together to provide broader scope and broader um, ways to target problems with water and wastewater so I'd be interested to explore in more depth how other branches of infrastructure investment are are doing at the moment and how they're doing in the coming years because water is evergreen it's a timeless need Mm -hmm. that's another thing that Paul I don't have a clip to share but that's another thing that Paul had mentioned too is just the resilience of the water industry in the face of economic change Mm -hmm. Um, whether there's a recession or a boom water is pretty steady and um, that's also helpful from the private investor standpoint that like when you invest in this it's a long-term thing it's going to be a steady level of income it's not going to you're not going to feel the spikes and the peaks and valleys as much as you will and say like the building market or something a little more private focused mm-hmm. because it's tied to government and uh, property taxes and all that kind of stuff you have a steady level of growth and then the other element is it's critical infrastructure water is required for life. If you don't have it and you're not treating it, you don't have anyone to spend money. <laughs> so it, it's a critical piece of, of, of a puzzle and like their rec- private investors recognize that as being really valuable. So Next, we have an interview to share with Polly Undesser. She's the executive director of the Water Quality Association. Polly's perspective focused on dreaming bigger to tackle new challenges and also maintaining integrity when educating the public on water contamination concerns. She also delves into some trends and regulations, so let's check it out. So the water treatment industry has always been a strong leader about dreaming big and tackling challenges, which is a great thing. Um, But I do believe that we are going to have to dream bigger than ever before as we are looking at things in the news about lead in service lines going to homes and schools and uh, daycare centers, as well as PFOS, um, which is something that is 
really a game changer for the industry on how we think about a contaminant class, which I've heard numbers up to 5,000 and above now. Um, but this is just a different way of thinking on this scale. And we're going to have to think differently to deal with that. We do have products that can help in these situations, um, but it really comes down to what are, what's the messaging to consumers so that it's not scare tactics that are driving purchases, um, but it's very educational and understanding how we're impacting their health and safety in positive ways. Um, so there's a lot of things that we need to do and think about as an industry, whether it's related to our code of ethics from WQA or related to just how we're conducting business in a best practice way. Um, so I really agree with Polly on that. The coming year, we've, we're facing some really big, some really hot topics, some really challenging concerns that are at the forefront of the consumer's minds as well. Um, there's been a lot of mainstream media coverage of water quality issues in the past year. It's on everybody's mind and it's up to us as an industry, not just the residential commercial drinking water sector, but as a water industry as the whole to A, be on top of these issues and meet them with new technologies that solve these problems in efficient and economical ways to the best of our ability, and B, that we're doing it in a way that's compassionate, considerate, and honest. Mm -hmm. And intentional, too. That's um, one of the things, that, one of the big parts of the One Water Movement is like all of those things need to be taken into account and they need to be intentionally taken into account. Uh, there's a really important emphasis on that that, mm -hmm. that word of intentional use, too, which goes kind of hand in hand with the whole um, scare tactics thing, too, of like being intentional about your messaging, about like, hey, that isn't right, and like calling people out on it and making sure that like people are sharing the same unified message on some of these things. And when it comes to public health issues and concerns, it it can probably be easy to fall down that rabbit hole of feeding into that, those scare tactics. But it is so essential as, as industry representatives and industry leaders to be a voice for honesty and integrity and to take your job and your role as being a gateway to educating the consumers to a, a better standard of water quality. For sure, for sure. Um, Polly also talked to me at length about some of the increases that we're seeing recently between state and federal regulations, and this issue really impacts across the whole industry. So let's listen to her thoughts on that. So I would definitely say in 2019, we have seen a higher quantity of differences between state and federal regulations. And the impact of that is the complexity and how to make sure that as an industry, we can tend to the needs of those regulations and that we can do it with simple solutions rather than having a different unique solution for every single situation which when we're talking about something like PFOS or lead, it can get very complicated very quickly already. Um, so for us to have those simple solutions that can work across many different situations or scenarios, that is an ideal state. So WQA, watching these legislative trends, we're really tracking and hoping to see movement that they are as harmonized as possible so that we can have solutions that will go across, whether it's multiple states or cross between states and federal impact. 
and that we really want to be and are that voice of the industry uh, for saying what we can and we can't do within a regulation to make sure that there's a tighter tolerance there um, and that they aren't just all over the board. So right now, I, I would definitely say that the the impact has been very positive, even though we are seeing a higher level of complexity. It's been positive that the state and federal legislators and regulators are open to other voices, such as WQAs and our members. Um, and so while they're open, that keeps the door open for this harmonization to make sure that we can make it um, you know, lower that complexity as much as possible. Yeah, that and that really falls in line with um, Megan Glover, the CEO of 120 Water Audit. She also talked about the state action stuff um, and how at the federal level, especially due with the election coming up and right now there's the looming impeachment proceedings and everything, that that's really dragging down the federal level stuff. So let's hear a little clip from Megan about what's going on in that regard, and then we can uh, loop back and talk about both Polly and Megan's comments. Uh, you know, it's, I think, uh, you know, my pr predictions, and I think we're going to continue to suss this out, I, I do think it is federal level, we will reach a standstill. Um, you know, I, I think we're going to see a big push with regards to the lead and copper rule revisions. We are waiting on a few big funding pushes from the WIN Act and others, which quite frankly would be very a strategic move for the incumbents right now at, at the federal level to get that across the finish line going into the election season. Um, and then at that point in time, it, I think at the state level, it's, um, that's where all of the, the, the reaction is going to happen, both proactive as well as reacting to the lead and copper rule revision. So, um, you know, in my, in my opinion, I think what we're going to see over the next quarter um, is probably all that we're going to see at the federal level. And then in 2020, you know, all action, um, you know, will happen at the state level. And I think we will see a lot of states um, uh, revise the lead and copper rule or take the liberties that the rule allows to strengthen it um, and take advantage of the election season as well. I don't think we've seen the, um, the strictest rule that we are going to see, quite frankly. That's interesting. Yeah, so I thought that that was particularly interesting. And I mean, when you think historically about how the impact of an election can have on regulations and movement at a federal level, it definitely just brings things to a standstill. A lot of people are on the campaign trail; yeah. they're moving around. They don't they, they don't have as much time to dedicate toward get, pushing a bill across the finish line. And if they did have the time to dedicate it to it, there's some there can be opposition to it because it may ruin someone's election campaign. <laughs> um, so for so what I really get what Megan is saying with that about like it's likely to we're likely to see more state level action. I've heard that not from multiple sources as well now too, and it sounds like Polly also saw that. Yeah, and I think also on the state level, it's it can be a little bit easier to move things through quickly because if a state is experiencing a particular problem and a particular need in that state for legislation to address that concern. People on the ground floor are seeing it and pushing for it. Mm -hmm. um, what I got from Polly's comments that kind of coincided with Megan's really interestingly was Polly really stressed the need for a harmonization mm -hmm. across the board from state and federal regulations to just lower the complexity factor to meet these standards across the board. But what I got from what Megan was saying was we might not be getting that in 2020. Yeah, and I think that's reflected in when you look at 
like states like New York and and whatnot who who have instituted their own PFAS levels and different ones have different strengths and different parts per parts per billion I think is what they're what they're doing or parts per trillion I'm not sure which one but different standards that they're trying to reach um, and I I don't think that that's going to change I think yeah. the water's too regional to not become something like that which makes it all the more important for resources to be available to understand what's what's my limit here what's my limit there what about this state what about that one what no i was gonna say that so for in my stormwater um state of the industry survey regulations and funding were rated two of the most important topics for 2019 and going into 2020 and the sources i were talking to um we're saying that the EPA is really good about giving out grants and being able to help municipalities, but the problem is there's such an increase in projects that they almost can't give a grant to every mm-hmm. state or municipality that needs them. So now a lot of municipalities are uh, incorporating stormwater usage fees. So I'm kind of interested mm-hmm. to see if that increases in 2020 and to see how you know an election kind of plays into that and kind of see where all the regulations yeah. go from there. That makes me wonder, too, if there's going to be a movement toward state revolving funds for stormwater projects as well. Like, those already exist on the waterfront, on the wastewater front. Will there be things like that for stormwater as well? definitely. But getting back to the contaminant side of things as well, um, we had talked a little bit earlier about, like, PFAS and other contaminants and whatnot. Megan had some comments that she made about the importance and the value of addressing PFAS and what she's expecting will happen in that regard. I think action has to happen um, in, 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 in 2020. I think in 2019, I think as we mentioned, we saw what five five to seven states uh, with proposed legislation. I think that that will more than um, you know double in 2020. Um, and, and then outside of that, I, I think I think the issues will be regionalized uh, depending on is it, is it water loss or other quality issues that may be, uh, may be affecting a, a given region. But I think on the national scale, um, water quality around PFOS, lead, and Legionella will continue to be a national drumbeat, lead sampling in schools, and then the mandate of some sort of replacement and or management program um, will be kind of the key drinking water theme. I also interviewed Frank Bergano, who's the Vice President and Senior Research Fellow for Marmon Water, and he had some thoughts that tag along really nicely with Megan's comments here about how it's past time for the industry to adopt some of these solutions, and he weaved in his thoughts about PFAS and emerging contaminants. The reason I believe there's been a lag is um, um, due to the fact that it's hard to guarantee 100% installation in in homes or businesses and it's hard to monitor performance um, the safe drinking water act when it was reauthorized allows for point of use slash point of entry for for uh, mitigating uh, contaminants but it, it hasn't been widely accepted but today we now have sensors we have um, internet of things remote monitoring apps that connect to devices, et cetera, it's, it's a lot easier to monitor performance. And I believe people today are more ex- ex- willing and accepting our technologies in their homes as a, as a treatment alternative. And we, we've seen that um, in Flint. We've seen that in Newark and others where point-of-use products have been installed to um, – 
reduce the lead content in water and to protect their their families, their children. So, um, so I think I think today it's becoming more accepted. In addition to that, when you look at some of the new contaminants that exist, like the, the forever chemicals, the PFAS, um, and, and all the pharmaceuticals and personal care products, it's it's a huge huge expense. It's for municipalities to remove these trace amounts of contaminants from water at, at a municipal level, and, and when you think about it. Only about what one percent of the water is actually that's produced is actually consumed. So, ninety-nine percent of it is being used for other applications, including flushing toilets, washing cars, etc. It just makes sense that you treat at the point point of use. Um, at least that's that's my belief. It's always been my belief, and um, I think we've appro- we're approaching a time where. Um, it's it's going to be more accepted. I think regulators are going to accept it. Communities are going to accept it because it's cost effective. In fact, WQA and I uh, did a study on that um, uh, recently through WQRF and showed that using uh, point of use devices was cost beneficial over a wide range of contaminants. So I think it's time. It really is time. And as I said in my piece, that I wrote for the magazine, it's way past due. I mean, we've been talking about this for as long as I've been in the industry, and it's time that it's implemented across the board. So Frank painted a really optimistic future for the point of use and point of entry industries as a final barrier solution, and thank you, Frank, again for your time. I'm interested to hear Bob's points about the last point that Frank brought up about um, point of use and point of entry being a more economical solution for emerging contaminants because of the difficulty of treating at municipal level. So I'm interested to hear Bob's thoughts from that perspective. Yeah, I think that that just comes down to the plant, really. Does the plant already have the facilities necessary to include granular activated carbon, or does it not? And if it doesn't already have those facilities, that's an insanely expensive thing to incorporate. Whereas if they do have those facilities, it it shouldn't be that much more difficult to add that on top of it, especially if you're already using GAC. Like, it's not going to make it more difficult for you to, to do anything. But for those that don't have GAC in place, um, it would be quite difficult. And it, it what I thought was interesting, too, is just kind of how that would align also uh, lead and copper rule-wise, where um, with the lead and copper rule, there's all of the, the, the revisions that are saying, like, you have to... Sample every daycare facility, every school facility. Um, you have to inventory lead lead pipe, private and public. Um, so, to me, that what's interesting about his comments is how like this is a final barrier solution. How does that fit into the lead and copper rule revisions when you're adding in final barrier? Do municipalities no longer have to treat for those mm-hmm. types of things instead because it's being treated at the final barrier? Um, what's the you know what what's the situation there? Not to say that like treating twice is bad <laughs> like, right. you know like I mean that it, it's probably just fine but um, is it is it is it a redundancy element at that point or is it a necessity so right. 
I think it also comes down to a question of volume and to what level something needs to be mm -hmm. treated to. So to your point about the lead and copper rule, we were just talking about this the other day, the sheer volume of the increase of number of locations that are going to need to be tested, monitored, and remediated mm -hmm. is going to spike astronomically. Mm -hmm. So having all aspects of the water treatment industry, from the municipal level down to the final barrier, um, firing at all pistons, so to say. Everybody mm -hmm. needs to be on their game right now. Yeah. Segwaying a little bit here, let's talk about stormwater. Yeah, we we, had, we didn't have a really good way to segue these, so we're just gonna get let Katie throw in some some cool stormwater stuff for you here. Yeah, I talked to a few um, industry professionals who um, obviously discussed stormwater, but it also seemed like erosion control is obviously becoming ever more important, so they focused on that. But first, um, I'm going to share a clip from Scott Barber, who's the CEO and president of Advanced Drainage Systems, and he kind of shares his overall um, view of 2019 and outlook for 2020, and um, also discusses um, how, in addition to, to stormwater, water quality overall is going to become more important um, going forward. So here's a clip from him. Um. Essentially, I think 2020 will be favorable construction market, but perhaps not this same level of carryover work uh, that we experienced in 2019. So I put it kind of in that that 3% range. Uh, okay. I believe that interest rates will remain low, uh, kind of the range they are now. Employment will be high. Therefore, consumer confidence will be good, at least I think until we get until the election. Good stormwater management and erosion control management of a, of a site really leads to a higher quality of life in a community. Um, so that, that's pretty relevant. And, um, and, and our ability as an industry to, you know, meet, not only meet the codes, but to do this in a way that that is really making it a, a, a very livable community, I think is important. Uh, we've, we've all seen the news where a large rain event happens and there's a lot of, you know, flooding or, you know, not enough capacity to handle it or poor design. And, uh, you know, those, those communities, uh, you know, that's not as high a quality of life as, let's say, in a place where it's well designed and it, you know, flooding doesn't happen when a large rain event occurs. So I think that kind of circles back to what we were talking about earlier about having intent when we go out and do regulations or projects to help, mm -hmm. you know, quality of life in certain areas, um, mm -hmm. while also making sure that floods, flooding can be managed, but making sure that it's done in a way um, that um, has intent. And he kind of talks on this in the next clip, but also specific projects sometimes impact the workforce as well. He's like, you want to give your employees mm -hmm. projects that make them feel appreciated and respected too. Yeah, and and also what he just said dovetails perfectly what Paul said at the beginning of the, of the episode of how th there's a, these extreme weather things that are going on that, you, that have to be addressed um, and how that also dovetails so perfectly with the private investment sector. You're doing something for a community and so like, there's a satisfaction element to that from a, from an investor standpoint. Um, so I just wanted to bring that up because I thought that was a really great dovetail. Um, and I have another clip from him, and in it he um, discusses, a, we, we were talking about it 
a changing workforce and he um, kind of stressed the importance of retention and having a, a workplace where employees feel like they are appreciated and I thought that was kind of important to share so here it is. In I'd say in 2019 and, and I think 2018 was similar I imagine most people you talk to mention labor availability and quality of labor as big challenges uh, for, for, the, for the industry. Uh, I would agree with that and, and I'd add that at ADS you know, we're really trying to deal with this issue by retaining our people, a big focus on retention, and creating an environment where people want to work, they're appreciated, they're respected, and then to follow that, you have to design work with the right processes and technology so that people can get their, their jobs done in a safe and desired manner and, and really want to stay with you for the long haul. So. I think that that's probably a, a pretty big one. And I think that that ties in also, we've been having a lot of conversations here about a changing workforce and how there's new generations coming in. So I think tying that in with this is really important for you know all three of our industries going forward into 2020. I don't know how you guys feel about that, but. Um, I'm glad that you and Paul brought this comment to the table. We, we do talk about evolving workforce a lot here, but I'm interested to talk about it in this perspective in light of the conversation about the state of the industry because at the start of the episode, we were talking about how the investment is going to be here. The investment is here. Water is an evergreen industry, but we need the people backing it and we need the people behind it. So I appreciate Paul's comments about how we can find those people, how we can keep them here, and how we can continue to grow across the board. And it's something that I encounter a lot in my conversation with water treatment dealers on that level. Mm -hmm. And one of the key things that I recognize in, in the nuance of his statements, too, isn't just about finding those people. It's about retention. Mm -hmm. It's not just the struggle to get them. It's also the struggle to keep them in place at your company. Holding on to employees for more than five years nowadays is really, really difficult. But if you can manage that, imagine how much more effective your business can be when you have someone who has five years of experience with that specific duty. Mm -hmm. There's a huge... Uh, benefit to that. So that's a really cool element that I hadn't thought of before and I think that we haven't really touched on before because we're always thinking about the initiation period mm -hmm. rather than the retention period. And I think that's that's not something that's unique to the water industry. I think that younger people enter, entering the workforce now, their expectations for what their job is going to hold change, is changing and the water industry is actually really uniquely positioned to meet that because younger people consistently want a, a job that they feel purpose in and they feel driven for and the water industry is absolutely positioned to provide like, meet that need yeah and just think about the values that the incoming generations have about the world and climate and sustainability and energy and green living like that all aligns really really well with the water industry it should not be it those should be very easy topics to entice them yeah, I was also uh, interviewed Keith Walker with APM Permaform for this. Um, it just didn't work out audio-wise, but he, I asked him about education and you know the generations coming in and out, and he was like, education is important; it helps the company grow. But so, new generations coming in help a company grow just as much, which mm -hmm. I think is really interesting That's and awesome. it weaves right in. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I also talked to Diane Smith, who is the president of East Coast Erosion Control Blankets, and I have uh, a couple clips from her talking about how she feels the industry is going and um, where she thinks it'll go in 2020. So here's her first clip. 
in my opinion, the industry is at a very good position. We are seeing positive growth and also positive attitudes in the industry for the future. I've recently attended several of the regional trade shows in the Northeast and the Southeast, and stormwater was definitely one of the main topics that people were asking about. It's the hot topic right now because of all the the storms that we've had, people are looking for solutions. I think 2020 will look very similar to 2019 for both the erosion control and the stormwater solution, stormwater. And I believe people understand that the erosion control practices provide a green source for some of the projects rather than the traditional riprap that they were using. So I think it was interesting that, you know, she was saying that, you know, stormwater's been such a hot topic because of all the inclement weather we've had, which we've, you know, heard other industry professionals say. And I also, when I talked to Keith Walker as well, he was saying that those 100-year flood events, they're occurring more frequently. So, which is a challenge to the industry, but also indicates that there's a growing need for solutions to that. So it's kind of looks like a double-edged sword almost. Um, But I think it's, you know, across the board that, this the weather and I think with climate change playing into that it's just going to continue to be um, you know a hot topic that's going to affect the industry Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting too that she says that uh, 2020 will be kind of very similar to 2019 in terms of business year Um, you'll just see continue to see the same kind of trends and whatnot Um, so there's doesn't sound like major shakeups it's more like let's get our let's get our feet grounded and really get this industry plowing forward still Um, And I wanted to highlight the word solutions that I heard her repeat multiple times because I I hear that word a lot, not just products, that members of the water industry are providing solutions to problems that the world is facing. Um, I have one more clip from her, and it is um, she gives suggestions on educational resources for erosion control and stormwater that I thought would be pretty helpful um, to our listeners. Um, So I'll play that right now. IECA gives a great education track for there. The ECTC provided um, the industry with installation videos for uh, rolled erosion control blankets, sediment devices, and hydraulic mulch. Those would greatly help um, new people coming into the industry and show them how to properly install the products. If a product isn't installed correctly, it will not work. It has a greater chance of failures. In my opinion, the the greatest one is having some of those that are moving out of the industry, and we see that as well, and making sure that gets passed on, whether it be through webinars, having those people come back as guest speakers, or just showing that their um, knowledge that they had gained over the industry is shared to the next group. So that kind of circles back to what we were talking about before from Scott and the others of passing down that general in, uh, generational information. Um, but yeah, I thought that her you know specific callouts were helpful to people looking to mm-hmm. further education. I know that in the stormwater state of the industry, people said webinars were the number one way they continue their education. Um, I don't know what what it was for you guys, but I thought that was really interesting too. Yeah. So. Well, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's, it's easy to be at your desk and say, hey, I'm blocking out this hour. I'm going to attend this webinar so I understand how to do my job better. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a pretty easy sell to most employers. <laughs> yeah.
um, trade publications are also very helpful for industry <laughs> knowledge and education. <laughs> and we hope I know a few. That if was you're looking rated, for that some, was, that was on mine as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, and and also uh, things like what we've done here with our state of the this state of the industry episode. We hope that this has been helpful for you and educational for you, giving you maybe a broader perspective on some things that you hadn't heard heard of before and. Uh, big thanks to all of the experts that we had talked to for Absolutely. this. Um, we we got some great quotes and stuff from them to really share with you. And without them, we wouldn't have an episode quite like this. Yes, thank you very much to all of our interviewees. We appreciate your time and the opportunity to share your insights with our readers. For sure. Listeners. Yeah, and so just uh, we're kind of at the end of the episode now, so I guess we'll go with our general housekeeping of get in touch with us at Talking Underwater at sgcmail.com if you want to get in touch with us leave some feedback too do you like this format for this episode did you not like the format Um, it's very different from what we normally do and um, we want to make sure that we're servicing you guys correctly and making sure that this is something that you're interested in I also wanted to make sure to bring up that WWD and WQP have nominations open for our Young Professionals programs, and WQP has nominations open for our Industry Icon program. For WQP, those nominations are due January 1st, so hurry and get those nominations in. We would love the opportunity to profile and honor rising stars and industry veterans alike. And for WWD, the deadline for Young Professionals is March 15th, so you have a little bit more time to do that, but definitely get them in. And like Bob said, we'd really appreciate your feedback on this episode. Thank you all for listening. Yeah, thank you uh, so much. And don't forget to like and subscribe. (laughs) (laughs) Happy holidays and a happy new year. Yes, happy holidays and happy new year, guys. See you in 2020. See you later, water nerds. (laughs)